Everybody ever seen Lord of the Rings here? All right, there's the nerds. I knew they'd be out there. All right, no, I'm kidding. I'm a nerd too. Um, my favorite, I think, out of the three is Two Towers. It's the second one. And the whole movie kind of builds up in this, this epic battle at what they call Helm's Deep, right? And it's the good guys and the bad guys. And, and at the kind of climax of the movie, it looks like the bad guys are going to win. Gandalf comes down off the mountain with his white robe and just kind of obliterates the darkness with his light. And the, the light wins. The good guys win. Everybody's celebrating, right? But that's not how the movie ends, is it? After this big celebration, there's this kind of ominous moment where we go back into the woods and there's Gollum, right? And he's sneaking around and he knows Frodo has the ring. He knows that he wants that ring from Frodo. And so he starts thinking, what am I going to do? How am I going to get my my precious, right? And so he says, I'm going to betray Frodo because I know what I can do. I can take him to her, and there's this big freaky spider that he's going to bring him to to try to kill Frodo to get that ring. And it sort of leaves the, the movie on this ominous note, because where we're going next is there's a, there's a third movie, right? There's a third part of this trilogy where, where the end is really going to come into climax. And I was thinking about that, because my brain works weirdly, as I was reading the story in John 11, right? We, we said last week there was this kind of moment when Jesus is this big celebration. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, right? He, he was dead for four days. He brings him back, and there's this huge celebration, and then there's a really cool note that it seems like the story ends on. It says in verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what he did and believed in him. So there's this group of people who were comforting Mary and Martha. And when they see Jesus become, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he gives life to the dead. It says they believed in him. They, they placed their faith in Jesus. We see people get saved that day to, to, to believe who Jesus is, who he claims he was going to be. So it's like, man, this is exciting. What a great ending to this movie. But notice there's a comma there. It's not a period. It's a comma. But that's not where the verse ends. That's not where the story ends. Some believed, but look at verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And just like Gollum, there's a few of them who saw that event. But they decided, instead of believing Jesus and following Jesus, to betray Jesus and to hand him over to some people who would try to kill him. In fact, we know would kill him. And what happens here? As this sets up our, our series finale, the, the final event of Jesus' his betrayal, his death, and his resurrection. There are some who saw this and believed Jesus. There are some who saw this and did not, and hated him, hated what they saw. Shakespeare was close, but he didn't quite get it right. It's not to be or not to be, which is the question, but everything in our life boils down to believe or not to believe. That is the question. That's the dividing line between all human beings on planet Earth, whether or not we believe. And you might say, well, of course I believe. Of course I believe Jesus and what he did and the Bible and all of that stuff. I'm here in church, right? I mean, I I wouldn't be sitting here in church this morning if I didn't believe. But what we see in this story, what we see in the story of the life of Christ is that the main Jesus haters, the people who end up actually being the ones, that, the impetus to kill him, are the most religious people in the story, the most consistent church attenders. And what I want us to see this morning is we're going to see the person of Jesus rejected by his own people. As I want us to examine our own hearts, to do some heart work today, and to see if there is something in us that was in these people that rejected Jesus. Because I believe at the root of all sin, 
The root of all sin is the issue of unbelief. If we believe that God is who he claims to be and who Jesus is who God claimed to be. So how do we get here? How do we get to this point? Here's our motions. You ready with me? From the beginning. God, creation, fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, exodus, law, conquest, judges, kingdom, divided, exile, return, silence, and Jesus. All right, we've been doing this story, going through the story of the Bible. These things help us remember where we are along the route, and we're in the life of Christ. But just kind of give you an idea of where we're going. Um, we're going to be wrapping up the life of Christ this month, uh, looking at his arrest, betrayal, death, and resurrection. And then in November, and this is so cool the way this just kind of happened to work out, November is our missions month, and we're going to be looking at the early church, the book of Acts, as Jesus gave this great commission, and the gospel's being spread to the ends of the earth. And this, this part of the series is going to go so well with our, our emphasis on missions this month, and we'll wrap things up at the end of November before stepping into our Christmas season together, just kind of give you an idea of where we're going, 52 weeks coming to a close. So Gollum, the people of, of the Jewish people who saw Lazarus' resurrection, we want to throw him under the bus, Jesus under the bus. They go and they shrink away and they go to the Pharisees and they tell them what they saw. And we go to John chapter 11. We pick up the story where we left off last week and look at what it says. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? So they go to this council. And this council, the word here is used council, really what it meant was the Sanhedrin. And to help think about what the Sanhedrin is, it was basically like the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. But even more so because it was both a political power and a spiritual power. No separation of church and state here. These very powerful people, they get together and they huddle up. And you can imagine if the Supreme Court of the Jewish people are discussing this man and this problem, it's a huge deal for them, Right? I mean, imagine if somebody in our country, some instigator, gets to the point where the Supreme Court is huddling up to discuss what are we going to do with this man. This is no longer just a couple of Pharisees ticked off because Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. This has become a national crisis. And why has it become that? Well, if you remember the history of the Jewish people, we've said that for hundreds of years, going all the way back to the Old Testament when they were exiled, Remember we saw Assyria and Babylon, they came and they, cap- they took captive the people of, 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 Jew- of Israel, they exiled them, but then after them, the, the, it, it didn't stop, right? There's this baton passing of slavery of the Jewish people. We see the Persians come onto the scene. After them, the Greeks take over. And then finally, where we are today in our story, it's the Romans who are ruling them and oppressing and listening. Well, listen, we have no idea what it would be like to be in their shoes to have another nation ruling over us. And not just politically, but man, it is brutal. They are killing people. The Romans, we know, they're crucifying rebels, raping women, pillaging villages. I mean, it is a brutal, ugly scene of oppression. And it's in the middle of, of this context that they hear about what Jesus is doing and what he's trying to accomplish. And they say this in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They say, man, look, if Jesus keeps yanking people out of graves, if he keeps performing all these miracles, these signs that he's this coming king and deliverer that he is claiming to be, he's going to gather up this following of people and they're going to try a revolt against the Roman army, against the Roman empire. And we're not going to win that. 
So what's Rome going to do in response? They're going to crush us. They're going to burn our temple. They're going to destroy us. And sadly, I think most important to this Sanhedrin, what they're freaking out is, is they're going to strip us of our power. They're going to force us out of this Supreme Court. And we will no longer have the power that we currently have. We don't want Jesus to stir the pot. And they were terrified. So what'd they do? Caiaphas, the high priest, he speaks up. This is so interesting. He says, one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, he said to them, you know nothing at all. I love this. This is like a, a first century dig, right? You ignoramuses, or ignorami, I don't know how that works, right? The, the sixth grade class that I substitute for, it would be literally, I can't even, right? That's how they would say it. He goes, are you... You're airheads, you, you, you morons. Like, what are you, what are you thinking? And he goes on to say, he goes, you don't even understand that it it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, it's interesting because here, Caiaphas is speaking politically. He's saying, if we kill Jesus, then we will save Israel from the fury of Rome reacting to this revolt that we think Jesus will lead. So let's just, he says, it's fine. We, all we have to do is kill Jesus, and the Romans will not crush our nation. But what he doesn't realize, and this is where the author, John, who wrote this book, he jumps in, and he kind of has this little parenthesis, this little footnote, and he says this. He goes, he did not, Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. You see, God was actually speaking through Caiaphas, even though he had no idea what he was saying, what he, what he was really communicating. God says, you're right. It is better that one man die for the nation. In fact, it's the best plan in the universe. What did Joseph say in Genesis? What God, what man intends for evil, God uses for good. And this is not just like God reacting. Like the, 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 the Jewish people want to kill Jesus and go, God goes, well, wait a second, I can work with this, Right? I can turn lemons into lemonade. This is not plan B for God. Jesus dying for the nation was his plan since before the dawn of time. And in Caiaphas' mind, man, he's saying, we'll kill Jesus so the Romans won't kill us. When God is saying, I will kill my son so that I don't have to kill you. And then it says in verse 52, and not only for the nation, he will die not only for the nation of Israel, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now I think very likely when John is writing this, he's talking about the Jews who had been scattered from the exile. Remember the, the northern kingdom, Israel, they didn't really all come back. But I think a step beyond this, he's saying, man, Jesus didn't just die for the nation of Israel. What did he promise Abraham? Through your offspring, will come one who will bless all the families on earth. Jesus' death will not just be in the place of the people of Israel, but it will be for the whole world. So this is the plan. Let's kill Jesus so that we can save Israel. And in verse 53, it says, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This was the plan. We're going to kill Jesus to save ourselves. And they had no idea what they were really saying in that statement. And you go all the way back to John chapter 1. This was not beyond God in the scope of his sovereignty. And he said, John said that this would happen. He said, he came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
The very people he came to save, the very people he came to offer this kingdom to, they reject him. And the question we have before ourselves this morning is why? Why do the people, I mean, if, if he's coming to give them life, is he, if he's coming to give them salvation and freedom, why will they not only reject him, but we'll see in a few days scream for his murder? And what I want us to see this morning, we need to ask this question because I think the same problems that caused them to reject Jesus, the same things in their heart are the same things in my heart and your heart. And something deeper than fearing a Roman squashed revolution. Look in the next chapter, chapter 12. John says this in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So, so you, you see what he's saying here? And Jesus came to earth. And think about all the signs that he's done. He, Jesus had fulfilled every prophecy up to that point that had been made about him. So they had seen all the evidence. Seen it right in front of their faces. And on paper, there is no doubt that he is the Messiah. But what but John's saying here is, man, seeing is not believing. I mean, imagine if Jesus walked into this room right now. Into our gym. And he started healing people. Like everybody who was sick, he just made them well. And imagine like, he took us out to the, to the parking lot and he starts walking on water. Right? All the mud puddles out there. He starts walking on them. Right? And all this rain we've been having this year, imagine if Jesus was just like, be still, and he gives us three months of sunshine, hallelujah, right? And he starts raising people, loved ones that you and I have lost, he starts raising them from the dead. He starts doing all these miraculous signs. John says if you saw Jesus in the flesh, because can you imagine the people of Israel, they were looking Jesus in the eyeball, and they witnessed all of these miracles, and he says they still did not believe. And listen to me, unbelief is not an issue of the logic. It's, it's not intellect. Primarily, to believe or not believe in Jesus is an issue of the will. It's an issue of our heart. And they did not want to believe in Jesus. Why? Why do they not want to believe in him? Two reasons that I see in the text this morning. Number one, they wanted Jesus to fix their external problems, not their internal problems. And we've been seeing this all through the life of Jesus. He wants to deal with what's on the inside, not what's on the outside. Look at what it says in verse 38. They still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So there was this prophecy that Isaiah made hundreds of years earlier saying Jesus will be rejected by his own people. And you look at Isaiah 53, that's, what he, that's the, the, the chapter he's referencing in verse 1, and John says, he says this, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is sort of a rhetorical question, saying he came, but they did not believe. He came, but they did not believe. And if you actually go to the Old Testament, if you go to Isaiah 53 that he's referencing, and if you see an Old Testament reference in the New Testament, go to the reference itself and read that whole context, and it really can shed light into what they were drawing from from the prophets. Because if you go to Isaiah 53, after it says, who's believed in him? Look at what it says next, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Isaiah prophesied this would be happening. What it says is Jesus came to this earth and he did not look like the king that they wanted him to be. 
says he had no form or majesty. He had no beauty. It means he was plain looking. And if this was the coming king, if this was the coming deliverer, he said, man, he sure doesn't look like it. And if you and I were selecting a king to come and rule, what would we choose? We want someone tall, dark, and handsome, right? Jawline that could cut glass. Suave, confident, well-spoken, powerful. Maybe he's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline, right? I don't know. Don't ad-lib, Justin. That's not good. What would you want from a king? This was unmet expectations. This is not what they wanted from their Savior. You remember the story in John 6 when Jesus feeds the 5,000? Actually, most scholars say, it says 5,000 men. Women and children added were probably closer to 20,000 people who Jesus multiplied from just a few fish and loaves. And what happens? After he feeds this great crowd, it says they actually tried to force him to be their king. They're all in. They start, like they're tracking Jesus down. They want to put him on their shoulders. They start cr- putting a crown on his head right away. Verse 15, it says this in chapter 6. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus ran away into the mountains. And they want to chase him down. Why do they want him to be king? Because he just gave a free food program to 20,000 people. Like if I came here like Oprah and was just like, and you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car, right? And I just start giving out free health care. And just food and car. And, and, and the, I give you a free iPhones. Not the iPhone 8, the iPhone X. That's how much I love you. I start, you're going to want to make me king too, right? Why? Because I'm giving you all these things that you need, that you think you need. I'm meeting your external desires. What does Jesus do when the crowd tries to make him king? He says he runs into the mountains. And they finally track him down. Jesus, where were you? We're trying to make you king. And look at his response. He goes, truly I say to you, you're seeking me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You want to make me king because you think I'm going to keep giving you free food. He says, look, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. He says, you want me to be your king because I'm meeting your immediate external needs. You want your belly to be filled. You want your sick to be healed. And you want me to free you from Roman oppression. But he goes, I've come to offer you the food that leads to eternal life. Your primary issue is not external, it's internal. I came to deal with you and your sin. The problem, the primary problem is not that you're hungry and that you're sick and that you're oppressed. The problem is that you're a sinner. And he says, there's no hope unless you consume me like you consume bread. I am the bread of life. And after he gives that message, look at what it says, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They go, uh, we didn't sign up for that. We just want free bread. And listen, if I'm honest, that's my heart too. Like I want a God king who will give me what I want, but not what I really need. What I want, I want pocket genie Jesus, right? I want to be able to walk around and pull him out of my pocket whenever I need him right? Can't make rent this month. Er, 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 Jesus. Grandma's sick. 
er, 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 Jesus, need this, need that. Don't like that guy. Er, 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 Jesus, get him. You know. We just kind of want to carry him around our pockets to do whatever we need him to do for us, right? But Jesus says, listen, buddy, your main problem, I did come for your best, but your best is to deal first with your sin. That's what he says in John 7, 7. The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. He says, nobody likes me. The reason that the Jews, the reason that we reject him is that he came to tell us that we are sinners. He says, I've come to tell you that all your, even your attempts to please me are filthy rags in my sight. You are evil and you need me. And listen, see, we're, we're comfortable, we're comfortable dealing with our sins on a hypothetical level, Right? And here's what I mean by this. Like, how many of you would say, raise your hand if you would admit this morning that you're a sinner? All right? Yeah, amen. All right. A couple of blasphemers in here. We'll, 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 pre, we'll, we'll deal with you to, after the service. But we're all pretty comfortable just kind of saying on paper, we're, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short, right? We know that we're not perfect. But let me, but, but let me ask you this question. How, how many of us could point to a specific sin that we've committed this morning? Like, to be, able to, to be able to name a real sin in our lives. And we're all over the place in this room. For some of us, that's not difficult at all. How many of us like being told we're wrong to our face, right? And in the moment, be like, oh, you're right. I did not see that. Thank you for that loving rebuke, brother. Hug it out, right? See, we're, we're comfortable with sin on a hypothetical level, but not when it gets real. Not when we actually have to look at real sin and real problems. And listen to me, as long as our sin is hypothetical, then our Savior will also be hypothetical. Because otherwise, what are we really being saved from? Until we see real sin in our lives, and we're really to, willing to really face real problems that we have, and our real inability to please God and to love others, then we are not going to cling to a real Savior. Dealing with specific sins. That's not fun. God's been revealing some of those to me lately. My tongue, believe it or not, gets me in trouble from time to time. Dealing with jealousy in ministry. Some real sins. And it's ugly, and it's painful, and it's hard. But until we get specific, we will have hypothetical sin and hypothetical Savior, and everything we're doing this morning is just playing games. The Jews rejected Jesus because they wanted Saul. Remember Israel? What do they say? We want a king like all the other nations. We want the tall, dark, and handsome. We want the golden crown, the golden scepter, sitting on a golden throne, pulling up in this big white stallion. And we want him to come and free us from the Romans. Heal our sick and give us bread. But Isaiah 53 says, Jesus came not with outward beauty, not with outward majesty. He came born in a manger. And he grew up for the first 30 years of his life as a poor carpenter in the middle of nowhere. Not the kind of person that we would put on the throne. And he did have a crown, but it was a crown of thorns. And he did have a robe, but he was mocked when they threw it on his torn back. And they ripped it off of him. And he was lifted high but it was on a cross. 
Jesus did not come primarily to deal with the outward problem, but he came to die for my sin. And they hated him for it because they were being told that they were wrong. And on a day-to-day basis, I hate him for it too, if I'm honest. My heart of unbelief. I reject him. So what's going on here? John takes it one step deeper. Second reason. They did not want Jesus to be God because they themselves wanted to be God. Look at what it says in, in, in John 12, 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. So there were some of them in this group among the Sanhedrin who saw all that Jesus did, right? He sees all the prophecies they fulfill and it all adds up. If we do the math, carry the one, yep, Jesus is the Messiah. He checks all the boxes, and there are some there who, who believed who Jesus was that he claimed to be. Then look at the tragedy of what comes next. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Why? So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. They were afraid that some of their peers would turn and go, wait a second, you believe that quack too? Get out of here. They for fearing their peers that they would be kicked out of the synagogue for believing in Jesus. And this is how he finishes it. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They were more concerned about their position in the synagogue than their position before a holy God. So they denied their Savior. What's going on here? This is the same battle that we have seen even before you and I were ever created. This is the battle for the throne. So we might never say this out loud, but in the heart of hearts, in our flesh, in our pride, we say we want to be God. We want to be God. Remember Lucifer? That was his sin, right? I will ascend. I will be like the most high God. I don't want God to be God. I want to be God. And you remember back in the, in the garden when the, Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, what's going on there? They say, man, we don't want God to be God. We don't want God to tell us right and wrong. And so they believed the lies of that wannabe God, Lucifer, who said, man, if you eat of that fruit, you can be like God. You can decide right for wrong for yourself. You can be in control. And every human since has been trying to take the throne away from God. Now you might say, why? Why, why would we want to do that? Well, it's simple. I think at the heart of all of this, the issue is that we don't trust him. We do not trust God to be God. I remember when I was 14, just got my license, or excuse me, just got my permit. There we go. That's legal. Just got my permit, and man, was I excited to get behind the wheel of that minivan, right? So there I am cruising in the minivan, my first trip to Anchorage, and I'm 14 years old, okay? Got the Dodge Caravan, sitting next to my mom in the passenger seat. I am pretty cool, right? Here we go. And I'm excited, right? I had barely, you're on K Beach Road, you barely ever go past 55. So I'm on the open road, and here I go. Oh, I could take this guy past one car. I could take that. I could take two cars at one time. Now I'm going to pass two cars. Double lane. Uh, it's all right. We'll do that. I just keep, and I start just going crazy. And my mom, we're in Cooper Lane, and she finally goes, this is not a game. Pull over. Okay. And there's a pull-off on the left side of the road. I'm on the right side of the road, so I just and didn't even look into oncoming traffic. <laughs> Luckily, we didn't die by the grace of God. 
and my mom says, get out. I will take the wheel. Luckily, she let me get back in on the passenger side and didn't just drive off. (laughs) Why did she make me relinquish the wheel? Because she didn't trust me, right? She did not trust me. She said, there's no way we're making it to Anchorage alive if this bozo keeps driving. Now, in this case, it was warranted. I should not have been trusted at that point. But what do we do? We do the same thing with our God. We say, I do not trust you behind the wheel of my life. And ultimately what we're telling God is, man, we don't, I don't believe your word. I, I don't believe that you'll tell me what's right and wrong. We say, I, I don't believe that you will protect me. I, I, don't, I don't believe that you'll satisfy all of my needs. I, I don't believe that you're good. I don't believe that you're, that you're actually for me. And so we try to take control. We try to take the wheel. We try to run the show of our lives and try to be God because we don't trust him to be God. We say, God, I don't, I don't, I don't trust you in the driver's wheel. I don't know where you're going to take me. I don't know if you're going to protect me. So we freak out and we grab the wheel. See, I don't mind God in the trunk of my car, right? That's a safe place for me to put God. And like Israel, I can pull him out when I need some bread, when I need the sick to be healed. I don't even mind him in the passenger seat, a companion. But to let him drive, to let him be God, to let him control my life is terrifying. And like the Pharisees, and I want to stay in my seat of power. Because I think, I have the audacity to believe that I can control my life better than God. You think about Isaiah. Remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, and he, he paints this picture of God. He says, I see him. He's seated in this, on this throne, and the train of his robe, it fills the temple with glory. And he talks about this smoke that's just filling the entire area, and, and, and the angels. He says there's all these angels flying around with these creepy eyeballs on them and stuff, and, and he says they have all these wings, and these angels themselves are covering their eyeballs so that, because they can't even look into the face of God. And they're screaming day and night, holy, holy, holy. Holy is our God. I mean, this is, this is the God of the universe. This is the God that we serve, the God that the Bible says loves us and has given us Jesus. And I say, I don't trust that God to control my life, so I'm going to try to control it. It's insane. But we do not believe him. And so I reject Jesus, who came to this earth to say, You are a sinner, you are a terrible driver. You are a terrible God. You need me. You look back at, at John, it says in verse 39, this is, this is some hard work here. It says, Therefore, they, the Pharisees, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He, meaning God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. He's quoting from Isaiah 6, that vision of, of God, which actually is really cool. He says in verse 41 that that vision of God on the throne, that was Jesus. Who Isaiah saw, that was, that was the glory of God, that was Jesus. So they saw that, but they didn't believe. And why? And, and this gets sticky, man. He says they couldn't believe because God had blinded their eyes. Now, wait a second. Did the Jews reject Jesus because they didn't believe, or did God make them not believe? And we started to get into the woods of sovereignty and free will. 
And just like Pharaoh, there are times when Exodus says Pharaoh hardened his heart. There's times when it says that God hardened his heart. And this is way above my pay grade to tell you how sovereignty and free will works itself out. But what I believe in Romans 1, it says, man, when we turn from God to our sin, that eventually God will give us over to that sin. And he will harden our hearts. And we see what we just saw earlier in John 11. God used, sovereignly used, Caiaphas' words to prophesy about Jesus' death for the nation. And I think here he used, ironically, the very rejection of Jesus who came to offer himself as king. They reject him as king. And what happens? That leads to his death. Which ultimately, what happens from his death? God raises him from the dead and gives him a name that's above every name, seats him at the right hand of God as our king, as our savior. And this is the beauty of the sovereignty of God. God uses that very rejection to accomplish his purposes. And then you go back to Isaiah 53. Remember what it said. He, he was despised and rejected. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Isaiah saw this coming. He knew that this was part of the plan. This is not, this is not throw God off. Look at verse 10. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. That the, the Father's plan. I mean, any of us, any of you in this room with children, you can put yourself in, in God's shoes to know what this would be like. That it was his good plan. It says it, it, the other versions say it pleased God to crush him. Why? Not because he enjoyed seeing his son suffer and die. but it was part of his plan because of verse 5. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Jesus came to die for the very rejection that put him on the cross. And it all comes down to, for us, do we believe it or not? To believe or not to believe? That's the question. Listen, do, do we believe the bad news? Do we, do we believe the news that, that, that our problem is, is not empty bellies, it's not oppression politically, it's not even that we're sick, but the, the, the core of, of the problem of us is that we are sinful. And again, not hypothetical sins, but real sins. Do we believe the bad news? That we have a problem that we can do nothing about? And do we believe the good news that Jesus came to die for that? That Jesus came to free us from that? That Jesus came to be the King and Lord of my life? And if we're honest, many days, and I'm not just talking to unbelievers. I'm talking to me. I'm talking to us. On a day-to-day -day basis, we, we fail to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And so we try to take the wheel back. And we think, if I can lock all my doors, if I can get enough insurance, if I can convince enough people of how awesome I am, get enough approval, get enough validation, and I, you know, I, I struggle with that. And if we can get enough people in this gym on Sunday mornings and make me feel good about my preaching, we chase money, 
We chase the praise of others. We work very hard to please God on our own. Why? Because we don't trust him. We don't believe God. We don't really believe God that Jesus was enough. We don't believe him that Jesus can satisfy all of our needs. So we cheat on him and think that other lovers will give us what Jesus can't give us. And I try to control my own life because I don't trust the terrifying thing to give everything that I am, my job, my spouse, my children, my decisions, my will, my health, to give that all over to him, to trust that he knows better than me, that he's for me and not against me. I fail to believe it. Father, I come before you this morning just confessing my own unbelief and knowing my heart like the Jewish people that I, that I on a daily basis, I, I, I reject you. And that I don't believe, I don't believe that Jesus is enough. And we struggle through that. But God, we know, we know that just like you used the rejection of Israel to accomplish your good purpose, that Jesus would suffer and die for our sins. This is not even about my ability to believe. And may we fall fully on the grace of our God this morning. May we come as we are, not play games, not pretend to be something we're not, that we would be honest about our real sin and throw ourselves fully on our real Savior. He came to die for us, and even though his very own rejected him, you used that. That was a part of your plan all along. That he would die in our place to forgive us of every sin, to free us from every sin, and to give us the only thing that will satisfy our hearts, and that's to worship you. God, give us the grace to trust you more. As we worship you here in these next few minutes, that it would come from a place of honesty, that we would believe who you said Jesus is, and that out of our brokenness, out of our unbelief, out of our rejection of Jesus, that you would reach down and save us that we would fully trust who Jesus is for us. It's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.